All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Julia. I'm a member here, if you don't already know me. And we're going to get into Psalm 13 this morning. I heard someone outside say Psalm 39. 139 is their favorite. And no, this one isn't 139, just 1313. You probably don't have any of Psalm 13 memorized. Maybe you've never even heard it before. So you might be wondering where all of this is going. And I love that journey for you. So I'm going to just let you guys wait in anticipation a little bit while I let you in on some of my thoughts about the Psalms. So this is one of our final messages in our Prayer in the Psalms series. And up to this point, we've heard many gifted and talented and wise people speak on a bunch of other Psalms. And they've been really encouraging and unique and really helpful. Quite a number of those have been Psalms of lament. And guess what? So is Psalm 13. So actually, about 60% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. So we're joining a good club. Um, I think that we, as um, both a community and part of a larger cultural landscape, need to talk about lament because I don't think we do it well. But I'm wary of this sounding like just a life is hard message. And life is hard and it sucks sometimes. But I hope in the end that you see, like I have after working through this psalm, that the hard life is not the end of the story. And that in the midst of our hard lives, we can look to the truth of the gospel for hope and comfort. If I'm being honest, I'm not really a psalms person. You know those people that love a psalm? Not me. Ethan, not me. <laughs> the psalms are hard for me personally because I find that I struggle to make requests of God or ask questions of him. I tend to accept things as they are and not out of an abundance of faith or acceptance of grace, but out of self-protection and honestly, a lack of faith. But I've seen that in my desire to protect and care for myself, I miss out on the intimacy that is a trusting and loving relationship with my father. A relationship that among many, many other things is free to ask questions, to be confused, and to acknowledge the wisdom I lack and really wish I had. So I'm looking to Psalm 13 as a way that I want to pray. I want to be able to lament because I want to be able to desire the fullness of life that is following Jesus enjoying and obeying him and trusting God to help me become more like him. Last year, before the Strowmans left to plant Restored Rancho, Ashley stood on this very stage and talked about being an integrated person. And it wasn't the entire point of what she was talking about. It was actually a very small piece, but it was really impactful to me. So I want to share that with you guys and I promise it will relate. So Ashley defined being integrated as being able to hold the good and bad parts of yourself together and accept all of yourself fully. At the time I heard that, I was in the middle of a long process of realizing that I didn't really know who I was. For a variety of reasons, I had established a place of comfort for myself in my relationships by figuratively standing behind other people. So I liked what they liked, I did what they did, I shared their thoughts, opinions, and preferences. And as I started to come out from behind others and stand on my own, I realized that I 
didn't have a lot of my own thoughts, opinions, and preferences. Which, instead of inspiring me to explore and determine what those things were, I found myself in a place of self-judgment and condemnation and without a lot of hope to ever be a unique and valuable contributor to the world. The things I was deeming to be true about myself were not things that I liked, and they overshadowed anything that was objectively good about me. So I was being encouraged by others and whose wisdom I trusted to figure out who I was and who I wanted to be, while at the same time being personally discouraged by my past and my inability to move forward on my own. So I really needed that picture of integration to be painted for me that morning as an option for what my future could look like. Hearing that definition planted the smallest seed of vision to be able to see my very far in the future self as someone who could hold the good and bad parts of myself together and accept all of myself fully. What a beautiful picture. It was a big light bulb moment for me. As I heard Ashley's words, my immediate thought was, wow, I want to be an integrated person. This is how I want to live. Similarly, when I read Psalm 13, I had another light bulb moment. I thought, wow, this is how I want to be able to pray. And when you read through it, and we will in a second, you'll see it actually has some themes of integration in it. The psalmist is helping us live in an integrative tension of holding both the good and bad parts of our lives together and accepting all of it fully, trusting we have a good and gracious God who is with us and for us. We've been learning a lot about praying in the Psalms this summer, and I think one of the most beautiful aspects of how God cares for us is how he speaks to us in different times, in different ways, in different places. So this morning, I'm going to teach us how to pray based on this psalm, and I'm trusting that God will speak through me how you need to hear. And I'm really hoping you haven't heard the same country song I heard the other day, whose lyric said, how I learned to pray wasn't in a church with a chapter and a verse some preacher made sure everybody heard. Because secrets out, that's exactly what I'm hoping will happen. <laughs> so here we go. Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Consider me and answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. So Psalm 13 is a short prayer of deep feelings. As you may have noticed while we read, it's a psalm of transition. It moves pretty quickly through three distinct stages. And those three stages are one, an opening lament, two, a desperate prayer for deliverance, and three, a song of faith and praise. And I'm gonna work through each of these three stages because that process, the transition, 
is important. But first, I want to talk about us. I think we, the actual people in this room, approach this psalm in a variety of ways. I think there's one group of people who are scared to admit our fears, our grievances, our despair, our sorrow. You wouldn't catch us praying a prayer like this. We may not even know that we have questions like that. I think there's another group of people that know their questions but feel like it's wrong to question God. You feel like you need to hide from God or others the pain that's really going on inside of you. And then there's another group that wants control. And what would sharing your worries and fears and sorrows with God really do anyway? You'd rather hold on to your worries than cast them on a God who may seem unpredictable at times. Maybe you're scared that he'll answer in ways that you don't want. There also seems to be a group of people who feel aspects of lament, but rather than lamenting to God, you only speak to your friends about your grief and sorrow. So you lament horizontally, but not vertically which is an act of connection and community, but not of faith. I think there's another group of people who feel like verses 1 and 2 are the cry of your souls. The psalmist opened up your heart and wrote exactly what was on it. You can tap into deep feelings in the blink of an eye. You might cry out to God all the time, but maybe you have a harder time getting yourself to the other side, to the faith and praise part. You're in the in-between between lament and resolve. And I also think there's a group, a group I'm personally dying to get into, who have wrestled, have questioned, have doubted, and maybe still do, but also who rest in the knowledge of who God is and who that makes you and what that means for your life. And I want to celebrate the work that God has done in you. It couldn't have been easy. And I also want to ask you to help the rest of us. Tell us your stories, share with us your wisdom, speak to us your encouragement. We need it. So now that we've established that, you all know which group you're in? Back to the three stages of Psalm 13. The first stage, lament. We even talked quite a bit about lament across the series, but I'm going to review it a little bit in the context of this specific psalm. If you haven't caught on to this yet, lament is an important part of the human experience. I heard it said recently that you cannot be a fully alive human being without experiencing loss and disappointment on a regular basis. And we need to take that seriously. In order to lament, we have to bring what's actually in our hearts before God. Learning the language of prayer is like learning the language of your own heart. My good friend John Dennert would say, we don't know anything until we attach language to it. When we pray, we're, praying, we're paying attention to our lives, our thoughts, our feelings, our internal and external worlds, and putting words to these things in prayer and asking God to attune to us. There are many ways to do this. Maybe you need to have a conversation with a friend or share your thoughts in your GC to help you develop the language of what's in your heart. Or maybe you need to create time and space to journal or meditate to help yourself gain clarity about your thoughts and feelings. Or maybe it's helpful for you to hear others' words in books or song lyrics or podcasts that match what's on your heart and give you the specific words you're looking for. Maybe you open up the Psalms and look for one that describes where your heart is. And then pray these things. Bring what's actually in your heart before God. 
There's a real faith and lament. You have to believe that God cares about you, about your life, in order to tell him about it. Your cries are statements of faith and belief in who God says he is. So let me read the lament again, verses 1 and 2. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? How long? Ultimately, the psalmist isn't asking for information. He's not looking for a specific time frame, but he is expressing the feeling of being unable to endure for any longer. How long is not so much a question regarding the precise time that the state of God's silence will end, but rather a plea that God break his long silence and reveal his power. The psalmist is finding himself in a real moment of desperation. He's longing for God to meet him. And this longing represents a grief as his hope for a specific reality has died. The repetition of the how long question is in what can be called a structure of intensification. It's kind of an intense term, structure of intensification. Each time how long is repeated, it introduces additional material which has the effect of heightening or intensifying the plea. So let's break them down. And while we do this, I would bet it's not hard to find yourself in or call to mind times, maybe even right now, that you felt this way. And that's okay. Welcome. Like I talked about earlier, we're looking at this as an example of how to pray. So honestly, the more relevant these feel, the better. Okay, first question. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? The use of forget here is as a deliberate act to neglect, ignore, or overlook. A feeling like God is purposefully distancing himself. This specific part of the psalm alerts us to the reality that some seasons and sufferings in life cause us to wonder about God's goodness and question his faithfulness. But God welcomes our questions and even gives us words to use with him with our confusion and hurt and sadness and anger. That's one of the reasons we're going through this sermon series and one of the reasons why it's helpful and important to know God's word, because he literally gives us words to use. Psalms are songs that are meant to describe feelings, and we can have some wild feelings sometimes. That's normal. It's part of being human. If you've ever felt guilty for thinking certain thoughts or having certain questions, maybe a question like, will you forget me forever, is a helpful example. Because there is no guilt or shame in your honesty with God. You can safely expose the feelings and anguish of your heart to the one who already knows how you feel. You can practice humble vulnerability with your loving Father. And then the questions keep coming. How long will you hide your face from me? One author says that the idea of anger seems implied here. It could also be worded as, how long will you turn your back to me, close your eyes to me, or look at me as if I were nothing? The language of this question is in contrast to the blessing that Moses and Aaron give to the Israelites in Numbers 6, which says, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. 
May the Lord look with favor on you and give you peace. In this way, they will pronounce my name over the Israelites, and I will bless them. Do you hear that line in the middle? May the Lord make his face shine on you. And the question here from the psalmist is, how long will you hide your face? If God's blessing is characterized by shining his face, hiding his face must characterize his displeasure. The psalmist wants to know if God is angry at him. Why else would God forget him and hide his face from him? These questions are a natural human response to pain and suffering. Where are you, God? So to relate this to an excellent piece of cinematic art, has anyone here ever seen a Cinderella story? Let me set the scene. 2004, Hilary Duff, Chad Michael Murray, and for those of us who are fans prior to her renaissance in The White Lotus, the one Jennifer Coolidge as the evil stepmother. Can you see it? It's good. But also, if you've seen any version of Cinderella from 1950 on, you'll get the idea. So specifically, in a Cinderella story, the prince character, Austin, thinks he's finally going to find out the identity of his pen pal turned crush at the Halloween dance. But his crush, Sam, comes dressed as Cinderella, her outfit completed but with a masquerade mask to disguise her face. Before the dance is over, Sam slash Cinderella has to leave abruptly to not get caught by her evil stepmother, Jennifer Coolidge. She runs away and turns her back to Austin. So Austin never finds out who she is. Because how could he ever figure out who she is with an eye mask on? <laughs> who knows? Anyway, the next day, he starts searching the whole school for the Cinderella. He's essentially asking, where are you? How long will you hide your face from me? Now, I know this is a silly example, and we probably all roll our eyes if we were watching it right now. But put yourself in the shoes of an earnest teenage boy who's vulnerably trying to find his crush and feels like she's purposefully hiding from him. In this case, she is, but you get the point. You would be crushed. He's feeling unseen, ignored, unimportant, just like the psalmist. But the psalmist isn't talking about Cinderella. He's talking about God. And since he's not feeling bad enough already, just wait, there's more. How long will I store up anxious concerns within me? I don't want this to turn into a sermon on anxiety, but I do want to take some time here to run through how the manifestations of anxiety can contribute to our pain and suffering. In a book titled The Anxiety Field Guide, it explains, anxiety can be mental, giving us messages to believe, emotional, triggering feelings, and physiological, causing changes in our body. So anxiety can present in mental, emotional, and physical manifestation. I went to this therapist like 12 years ago, and in my mind, I was there to process a traumatic event and then be done with it. Easy. But a couple months in, the therapist started running through different scenarios I had shared with her and would ask me how my body felt in those moments. I thought this lady was like endearing, but a little kooky. And I would try to answer the questions, but I didn't really get what she meant. Nothing ever connected for me. That line of questioning and reflecting wasn't impactful. I honestly didn't give it a lot of thought or weight at that time or even after. But fast forward to 2021, 
10 years after this, and I started reading about the physiological manifestations of anxiety. A spinning mind, a racing heart, tightening of the body, upset stomach, diarrhea. <laughs> That's abysmal, come on. <laughs> and I don't know what clicked in that moment differently than in my introduction years before, but I had this awakening to myself and my body. I realized if this is what anxiety can feel like, I'm anxious all the time. And then when I reflected on not just the last 10 years, but honestly on my entire life, the anxiety in my life became very clear because of how it physically manifested in my body. And it's been an important part of processing and healing for me to identify the sources of my anxiety. And I wouldn't know that without the physical cues my body presents with. While that's very clear to me now, I struggle a bit more to connect as quickly to the mental or emotional manifestations of anxiety, but you may be the opposite. What I see here in Psalm 13 is the ancient wisdom of the scriptures showing us the way our anxiety and need to lament is carried in our bodies and emotions in different ways. So I was looking up different translations of this verse, and I want to share them because they're all slightly different and connect to different aspects of how we all might experience the anxiety of grief and pain. So the ESV says, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? The NLT says, how long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? The NIV says, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? And the message says, long enough I've carried this ton of trouble, lived with a stomach full of pain. Anguish in my soul, sorrow in my heart, wrestling with my thoughts, having a stomach full of pain. Do you relate to any of those? Stirring in your own thoughts, being trapped in your emotions or your bodies. Here's the thing. Anxiety competes with the gospel. Anxiety is one of the most prevalent things that competes with our connection with God. It's hard to connect with God and be filled with anxiety at the same time. And the psalmist knows this. That's why he cries out, how long will I be filled with this anxiety? But remember, the psalmist is showing us how to pray. So we can name our anxiety and turn our inward thoughts and feelings and experiences outward to God. As we begin to look at Psalm 13 as an example of how to pray, we see that as we pray our questions, we will find that honestly sharing our hearts with God is the first step in experiencing his help, peace, and deliverance. Learning to ask God our questions and then trusting that he hears us and will act at just the right time is the mark of someone who's living by faith in an uncertain world. Moving into verses three and four, we transition to the next stage following the opening lament, a prayer, a desperate prayer for deliverance. It says, consider me and answer, Lord my God. Restore brightness to my eyes, otherwise I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have triumphed over him, and my foes will rejoice because I am shaken. Verse 3 starts with, consider me. This could also be translated as, look at me. 
My first thought was that that line was a request, but it's actually, the tense of it is a command. So it's not a question like, will you look at me? It's a command for attention. Look at me. There's a vulnerable desperation there. It's kind of like that infamous scene in Love Actually where the guy shows up on the girl's doorstep with a bunch of signs to profess his love for her. Can you hear you? See it? Uh, he's commanding attention in order to make a plea to her. Remember how the psalmist felt like God was hiding his face? Well, here's where he confronts that. Look at me, God. I need you. Help me. Then he asks God to restore brightness to his eyes. He's asking God to restore his strength, his health, his stamina. Some commentators think that David, who's the psalmist, was experiencing a significant illness, so he could be asking God to heal that, his body of that illness. But illness is not the only physical symptom we can experience. Think back to our anxiety discussion. What happens inside of us impacts what happens outside of us. Our bodies and souls impact each other. They are inextricably linked. God created us as embodied souls, and he cares about every single part of us. And his final prayer is for deliverance, as the message describes, so no enemy can get the best of me. You may have a specific enemy in your life that comes to mind, but we all do have an enemy that wants to get the best of us, that wants us to be separated from God. When we're believing false narratives, when we're overcome by anxiety, when we're physically weak and worn down, it's easy to confuse the voices we hear. Prayer helps us to slow down and find intimacy with God so we can be rooted in his love for us and know the sound of his voice. Prayer is not first about revelation, but about intimacy. And in his intimate love for us, we can cry out to God and believe that he can change our situation. I am currently experiencing a period of pretty intense loneliness. I can get by with or without a lot of things in my life, but being lonely really sucks. And in, this, in a way, this one thing that I can't seem to control has prompted me to ask questions of God. That being said, I'm not looking for sympathy or invitations to hang out or suggestions on how to remediate my life. This is a very real thing for me, and I have people I'm talking to and processing with, and part of my process is acknowledging it and living in it. Here's how I would write my lament and prayer for deliverance right now. How long, Lord? Will I be lonely forever? How long will I have to carry my burdens by myself? How long will I wrestle with the unbelief in my heart and my mind? How long will my relationships seem unfulfilled, seem out of reach? Consider me and answer, God. Restore joy to my heart and hope to my soul. How would you write these verses right now? Many of us find ourselves in the in-between places of unknowns and questions and doubts. We may have lost hope or run out of patience or even consider walking away because we can't wait for God any longer. When the psalmist found himself there, he wrote both questions and pleas. So maybe your question sounds something like, how long will I worry about my health? 
How long will it take until I finally understand what's going on with my child? How long until my spouse changes their ways? How long will I struggle in this job, struggle to get pregnant, struggle to find a partner, struggle against constant comparison with others? And maybe your pleas sound something like, deliver me from my despair. Bring light into the darkness that is overshadowing me. Protect me from hearing and believing lies. Release the weight of suffering from my body. D.S. Lewis writes about a question and a plea in the novel The Magician's Nephew, which is the prequel to The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In the scene, Diggory, a young boy whose mother is sick, meets Aslan, the lion, who is preparing him for a mission in Narnia. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with the Narnia stories, Aslan represents Jesus. So I've been reading another book called All Who Are Weary, and in that book, the author, Sarah Hauser, summarizes this scene really beautifully. I'll read it. Aslan asks Diggory if he's ready, and Diggory considers for a moment that he might make a deal with the lion. I'll help you if you help mother. But he thinks better of bargaining with Aslan and replies with a simple yes. Tears start to form in Diggory's eyes because it seems like the hope for his mother's healing is fading away. How long will my mom be sick? He can't stop the words, his desperate prayer for deliverance, from pouring out. But please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? Diggory lifts his eyes to look at Aslan's face, and what he sees surprises him more than anything. The lion isn't looking at him with pity or disdain. He isn't annoyed by the boy's plea. Instead, Aslan himself bends down toward Diggory. His own eyes well up with tears, and Diggory can't help but wonder which of the two of them is sadder about mother. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know grief is great. Aslan doesn't solve his problems in that moment, but he's with him, he comforts him, he empathizes with him, he sees him, and it's there in that middle, in-between space where it seems like all hope is lost, that God not only hears our cries and laments, but he even goes so far as to lean in next to us while we weep in the darkness. He puts his arm around our shoulders, presses our head against his chest, and he waits with us for the morning. The psalm ends in verses 5 and 6 with a transition to a song of faith and praise. So to recap, we've moved from lament to a prayer for deliverance to now a song of faith and praise. The verses say, But I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. The psalmist affirms his faith with a strong contrast to the prior sections, but I have trusted. This short poem, this psalm, which began with a cry of distress, now rises with a song of praise to God. I have trusted translates a verb meaning to rely on, depend on, or place confidence in. The grammar used represents something that is still happening. 
which may be better represented in English by the phrase, I am trusting, or I always trust. So we could read the verse as, I am trusting in your faithful love. It's active. I'm doing it right now. And that phrase, faithful love, is the Hebrew word hesed. And the word hesed combines unconditional love, generosity, and enduring commitment all into one. Hesed is an act of promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by deep personal care. Hesed isn't conditional or based on the receiver's worth, but it's an expression of the giver's character. The biblical examples of Hesed don't characterize people that deserve love. They display God's generous loyalty to his promises. In the Bible, God is loyal and loving for no other reason than it's just who God is. God's ultimate display of Hesed is in becoming human and binding himself to us in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate loyal and loving human. In his life, death, and resurrection, God opened up a new future for all of us. He did this because that's just who he is. Generous, loving, and eternally loyal to his promises. God is consistently described in the Bible just like he is in Exodus 34, 6. Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. And that's the God we get to make requests of, that we get to trust in and depend on. Psalm 13 is grounded in belief about God's character and nature. So even though our questions can be brought before our loving Father, they must ultimately be resolved in trusting his character. Spurgeon put it really beautifully. When you cannot trace his hand, you can always trust his heart. The psalmist follows his proclamation of trust by declaring, my heart will rejoice. And I think that we all hope that our hearts will rejoice naturally and often. And I don't know about you, but that's not the case for me. Last year, I went through a spiritual formation curriculum that introduced celebration as a spiritual discipline. This is how it was defined. Celebration is a way of engaging in actions that orient the spirit toward worship, praise, and thanksgiving. It involves identifying and pursuing the things that bring the heart deep gladness and reveling in them before the Lord. As I was exploring this, I wrote down in my journal, I want to practice celebration as a specific time and space to enjoy others. I honestly thought celebration sounded pretty cool and was so unlike any other spiritual discipline I had heard of or tried before. And I'm not really a naturally fun person, so I was definitely down for a little more of that. And this was all in the midst of a pretty emotionally intense season for me, so celebration wasn't like flowing out of me. It was a practice I had to work to engage in. But the intentionality to create space for people I loved and places I loved created glimpses of light in the darkness that I was experiencing. These were things as small as going for a walk with a friend, getting ice cream and eating it in the backyard, inviting friends over and making really good food and drinks, to as big as throwing myself a big 30th birthday party and handpicking lots of little specific elements to make it engaging and fun, hosting my family for Christmas, having little things around the house and planning things I knew that they would love. My overall goal originally was to enjoy others, 
But you know who I ended up enjoying the most? God. Being able to be present to the here and now helped me to recognize the goodness God already provided in my life and cultivate more goodness, even when life felt bad. As I made room for things in my life that brought my heart gladness, that made me happy, it oriented me toward worship, praise, and thanksgiving of a God who I couldn't deny loved me and cared about every aspect of my life. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. This is one of those already not yet situations. God has already delivered us. God came to earth as a human to walk like us, talk like us, breathe like us, but he was entirely different than us. He showed us how to live, and then he died for us so that we could live and be in his presence and glory forever. So we praise God for what he's already done, and we do that despite of what he will or will not do in the future. But there is also a sense of expectation in the closing verses. The psalmist's heart will rejoice in the deliverance brought about by God, and he will sing praise to God for, because of his generosity. There is so much yet to come, and we praise God for that, too. If we can trust in God for our salvation, we can trust him to care for all of our needs. It feels a bit cliche to end the sermon with, trust God. But by lamenting and asking, you are trusting, and it always leads us back to Jesus. Sarah Hauser wrote another really poignant excerpt. We feel alone in our pain. No one understands us. No one gets what we're going through. But Jesus gets it. And that might sound cliche, but only if we've sugarcoated the pain of our Savior. We can only dismiss the truth that he understands when we've dismissed his suffering. God incarnate started his life in the womb of a poor, humble teenager. He suffered through a sham trial, died a horrific death, and was buried in a borrowed tomb. The Son of God, though there was no deceit in his mouth, no sin in his heart, no words wrongly uttered, endured suffering of the worst kind. He gets it. He knows your grief. The God who made the universe also sits with us in our grief. And the God who sits with us in our grief is the one who overcame it through the resurrection. I want to go back quickly to our discussion on integration. I said before that the psalmist is helping us live in an integrative tension of holding both the good and bad parts of your life together and accepting all of it fully, trusting you have a good and gracious God who is with you and for you. My hope is that after working through this psalm, you see that a little more than you did before. That as we went, went from lament and confusion to praying for help to ultimately expressing confidence in who God is, that you were able to hold the tension of good and bad, pain and celebration, sorrow and joy, and see that they aren't exclusionary. We don't have to have one or the other. When we are in the midst of deep sorrow and pain, questioning and longing, the gospel gives us the resources we need to wrestle with our emotions rather than just listen to them or be defined by them and break out of a pattern of unhealthy thoughts or messages that have been holding us hostage. And like Psalm 13 does, we can honestly tell the story of where we are, 
our current reality and cast vision for the hopeful future to which God is leading us and trust that he's working in the in-between. I want to end with one last quote by the late and great Tim Keller because it not only closes out the message of Psalm 13 perfectly, but is genuinely my desire for all of us. Believing the promise of your presence in my suffering takes time and grows slowly through stages and prayer. So I will pray until my heart rejoices in you. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your presence. Thank you, God, that even when we don't see you or hear you or feel you, that you're there. Thank you that you not only listen to us, but you hold us against you and you weep with us. Thank you that your character is perfect, that you are loyal and loving and generous and affectionate. I pray this morning, God, that you would help us live in that tension, that life is hard, that we don't know what's happening most of the time, but that we can trust in what you have for us, that you're good and gracious and loving. So I thank you this morning, God, for your words in the psalm. I thank you for the work that you're already doing in these people in front of me, and I pray that you continue it. We love you, Jesus. Amen.